Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hello and welcome to a musical journey like no other giving you an in-depth, invigorating, and exclusive look at the newest Smashing Pumpkins concept album, Autumn. This is 33 with William Patrick Corgan. This is episode seven, chapter seven, the seventh step on this interstellar musical expedition. If it's your first time listening to 33, welcome. And if you've been with us since the very beginning, thanks for being fans and thanks for tuning in. On this episode, like every episode of 33, we're going to have a world premiere of a song from the new album, Autumn. The song is titled Steps in Time. As always, we're going to break down the song with Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan. We're going to go deep into that story, the lyrics, the melody, the connections to past albums, and the connections to the world we share. We're also giving you exclusive insights into previous hits, B-sides, fan-favorite tracks from the Billy Corgan catalog. On this episode, we're listening to and analyzing Today, the second single from the 1993 album Siamese Dream. A cover of Today has been prominently featured by our guests in a recent project of theirs. Our guests on today's episode of 33 are the indie pop duo and LGBTQ plus activists Tegan and Sarah. The new television show High School, based on Tegan and Sarah's best-selling memoir, has episodes available now for free through the streaming platform Amazon Freebie. It's also available on Amazon Prime. Tegan and Sarah's new album, Crybaby, is out now, and the duo will begin their North American tour starting Wednesday, October 26th, in the city of brotherly love. That's right, Philadelphia. I'm Joe Galley, one of your hosts for 33, and joining us on this journey is my friend and broadcast partner, Kyle Davis. Hey, I love the intro. We are seven episodes deep. Big thanks to everyone that's found us. And if you're just finding us now, thank you for joining the party. Go back, listen to the other ones. You can also talk about this on social media with hashtag WPC33 spelled out. 
continue the Evolve the Conversation. The more people to know, the better it is for us and the more we can bring to you. Like, subscribe, share, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. iTunes, Spotify, iHeart app. Tell a friend. Make that happen. WPC, you're a busy man between dealing with us as we build the National Wrestling Alliance. You're performing almost every day of the week while on tour with Jane's Addiction. The Spirits on Fire tour is the name of that, and shows are coming up in Quebec, Cleveland, Milwaukee, and the list is going on. You're on the run performing so much. I got to be honest with you. You're a busy man. Thank you for finding the time for us. What's the vibe? What's going on in your head? Well, I'm in D.C. today, and this morning I got up early and got to go to the Library of Congress and get a private tour. So I saw everything from Gershwin's personal piano that he wrote so many great classics that I love on to a handwritten uh, Mozart manuscript or a string symphony or a violin thingy. Nice. I'm sure that's the technical term, violin thingy. So cool day. Uh, You know, definitely a rock star perk day. Uh, to get a private tour at the Library of Congress. So I'm a happy musician. I love tradition. I love history. And uh, let's just jump right in because we're here to talk about autumn. You know, people are starting to see, and, and I'm getting some feedback from fans, of course, not only playing the songs on tour, but people listening to the podcast, they're getting a sense of the album that autumn is. It's still a bit of a sleeper because it's not loud and glaring like most album releases are. This is kind of a sneaky way we're doing it. So I see a story building, and so it's cool to tell the story as it builds up. In this particular part of the narrative, we now have June back in space. June has received a message from Osira on Earth. She knows that Osira is on Earth, but Osira doesn't know that June is in space. June receives this message, and June is absolutely heartened with the fact that someone on Earth, just one person, cares about Chinese decision to kill himself. And so June writes Osira back. Again, Osiris doesn't know that June is in space and says, if you want to know the real story behind Shiny and you want to know the real dirt on this thing, go to these coordinates. And she puts them in a form of code because she's certainly worried that maybe somebody from uh, the XNI, which is the governmental agency that oversees all these things, might be watching. So she puts the message in code. Osiris and Nighthawk, being part of Hopus Day, are smart enough to figure out what the code means. So they're going to go off and try to find this little treasure that June has hidden away. And the song Steps in Time is June sort of turning back out into the cosmos to sing the shiny See, I was right. I was right to put myself in space next to you. My destiny with you is now coming true. I'm going to be responsible for bringing you back. And you don't even realize how important I am to you. Now, June has to communicate all this stuff while not being able to say that June is in space. Is that because June potentially could be in danger if June is discovered up there? Well, June bribed her way into space And she paid a lot of money from the family's personal fortune. You know, let's call her a trust fund baby type, right? She's paid a bunch of money to make sure that her craft is the craft next to Shiny's. Shiny doesn't know who's over in the next ship. All he knows is an origami butterfly occasionally floats past a ship. So he assumes the person in the next ship over is just being kind. They're at a distance where they can't see each other. They have no other way to signal other than some flashing lights. So when Shiny takes the march of life, he's of the understanding that no one will care that he's killing himself. Why would anyone care? He knows he's been erased on Earth. He's been in space for 20 years. So June is the person who makes that critical decision that Shiny's not going to go down without a fight. So now her plan is working, at least to this extent. She's messaged someone randomly on Earth hoping somebody would care. A young woman who's not a fan of Shiny sees the message, 
They go to an older hacker, a dude, his name is Dr. H. Dr. H basically says, hey, this guy's up in space and he's decided to kill himself. I can understand why no one cares because I didn't even care. I wasn't a fan. But hey, I got this song. Sends the song to Osira. Osira listens to it, feels absolutely nothing of attraction towards the song. Tries to post about it as many young people would. The message is erased, which tell Osira that there are some censors involved here. Goes to the dark web, which in the story is called the crystal web. Posts about it and suddenly finds there's this huge fan community for Shiny with the very people that she respects, which are like the hacker behind the scenes type of people. People kind of living in the digital weeds. So now Osira messages June in space. Basically says, hey, somebody down here cares. June assumes that that person is Osira because they're messaging and says, hey, go to these geo-coordinates. Now she turns to space. Shiny's floating away somewhere in the cosmos and says the Shiny, Shiny, I was right. I was right to be this person for you. You don't even know how important I am to you. You know, this track, number seven, Steps in Time, feels like it's the beginning of an adventure. Like there's just this excited anticipation of what's to come. But also you just mentioned that coded messages and stuff. Is there any chance that there's maybe some hidden things in this album that people are going to be finding or should be looking for? The whole album is full of coded messages. Even if you listen to this podcast religiously, which I know you all will, and even if you read the liner notes that come out with the box sets, there are hundreds of clues that only Smashing Pumpkins fans would pick up on. Or if you're interested in the story, you'll find deeper and deeper layers of the narrative. I've made the decision not to give it all away at this point. There's enough there that you can follow, but I want you to be able to enjoy and watch the movie and come to your own conclusions. I don't want to spell it all out. I think that's a bit boring, and it's sort of not the pumpkin's way. And also, it ties in with the story. I mean, at this point in the story, you have a group on Earth that are going to be essentially doing like a geocache treasure hunt. And so you're also giving the fans that opportunity to do that through the music. See? Now you're now you're on point now. That's why I love you, Joe Galley. Yes, so... So June sends these coordinates to Osira. We'll get into what happens that in a subsequent song. But this is June's song of celebration. You got to remember, June's from a, a prominent family. And when June's family finds out, this is my own little backstory. It's not in the album, but you can understand why it's important, the backstory. When June's family finds out that she's going to put herself into space for the rest of her living life with an artist that she's never even met and if she has it was it was a wave at an autograph signing or something she's not known to shiny i have known people in my life who claim they have a sense of destiny with the famous person okay i'm talking about other people not myself and they really believe they have this karmic deep relationship june is absolutely convinced she has a destiny with shiny here it comes it's actually happening she's the one person in the entire stratosphere because remember she's off planet that has some say of whether or not Shiny's going to die. On that note, I think this is a good time for us to get right into it. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it is a world premiere of Steps in Time. Tegan and Sarah also joining our podcast. This is 33 with William Patrick Corgan. We'll be right back. Now available for pre-order at MadamZuzus.com. The autographed 4LP box set of Autumn, the new album by The Smashing Pumpkin. This 4LP colored vinyl pressing is limited to 1,333 units and will be machine-numbered and autographed by the Smashing Pumpkins, Billy Corrigan, Jimmy Chamberlain, James Eha, and Jeff Schroeder. The limited edition box set includes the three-act, 33-song rock opera that is Autumn, and 10 exclusive unreleased songs over the course of five seven-inch singles that will not be available for streaming or found anywhere else. Go to MadamZuzus.com to pre-order today. Free shipping in the USA, three-unit limit for order. Pre-order will ship after April 21st, 2023. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury 
with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Welcome back to the 33 Podcast. William Patrick Corrigan here. You know, being an artist, you're a lot of things. You're a collector. You're an archivist. You're a thinker. But you're also a thief. And in this particular instance, I stole this title from Fred Astaire's wonderful autobiography called Steps in Time. I just love the idea. It paints a beautiful image in my head. And so, with all due respect to Fred, enjoy Steps in Time. Written out. 
Welcome back to 33 with William Patrick Corgan. You just listened to the world premiere of Steps in Time, the seventh track from the upcoming album, Autumn. At this time, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome our guests, Tegan and Sarah. Welcome to 33. Thanks for having us. Hi. This is very exciting. All right. This is awesome. (laughs) Well, first of all, congratulations on your overnight success. (laughs) Yeah. Do you get, do, do you yeah. get that joke? Yeah, <laughs> finally. When I knew I was going to talk to you today, that was that was my thought. My first thought it was like, "Wow, overnight success!" You know what's wonderful is you know we first crossed paths many years ago. I think when we were both managed by Elliot Roberts, who most notably was Neil Young's manager. Uh, Elliot's since passed away, and so that's when I got to know you way, way, way back then. I remember him talking to me about you both and saying how wonderful you were. And, you know, because of that sort of little personal connection, I've always paid a, just a little bit of attention to how you both were doing, how the world was perceiving you, because I know it's a cruel business. It's very exciting for me that you've really had this success now that, you, that you've always deserved, but it's really finally come, and particularly on your own terms. So I guess my question would be something along the lines of like, how does that feel? Because that's a very unique journey. Most people don't have that journey. I mean, I, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think... Bring up, oh, oh, sorry, sorry. sorry. Oh, I bring, <laughs> do you want to like paper rock scissor for maybe it? Maybe we no, need maybe we need to raise our hands when we there, yeah. yeah maybe that's the the interview hygiene. Um, we we loved Elliot Roberts, and I just want to say that you know I think what you're describing this kind of career um, really was in some ways it was sort of like I guess the the tools were given to us or the map was given to us by Elliot Roberts. You know he was so instrumental in those early days of making sure that Tegan and I didn't feel like we were trying to hit some kind of benchmark or we weren't successful. Like he really, I remember even as teenagers, him telling us when we first met, you know, you'll make your best records. You'll write your best songs when you're in your thirties and forties, like when you've had life to you've lived and you you have wisdom to bestow upon people. And, you know, we really felt like that gave us a long runway and we didn't necessarily have to 
um, look for opportunities or hit certain kinds of like sales goals or radio goals or whatever, because we really thought of ourselves as artists that would be around for a long time. And, um, and I think that that mentality allowed us to sort of like be nimble and have bigger successful records and lower, you know, records that were a little more like deep cut feeling and, um, you know, and also sort of branch into other um, creative mediums, you know. Now, Billy started this by jokingly saying overnight success, but the truth of the matter is you have been a name that I've been following for years now. I enjoy the music. You have the new album, Cry Baby. You had the book, which now you have high school, which is based off of your memoir. How does it feel to be able to cross that boundary of we're a musician, then we became something more, and now producers, creators beyond that, that somebody might find your art and that your life experience through something that's not even music-based, which is how this all started? You know, when Sarah and I started out, people still sold CDs, but we didn't because we were, you know, so young and on an indie label. And so we never got comfortable. Like we never had a big success while that part of the industry still existed. And a lot of our friends who were around in a time where you could sell 10 million albums, like I could see them really rejecting and resisting the move towards, you know, streaming and going online and social media and diversifying and getting into content creation and all of these things. And Sarah and I just never felt like we had a choice. You know, we were flopping around in obscurity and, and you know, pockets of the indie world for such a long time that we had to figure out a, how to fill our time and B, how to, how to make a living. And, you know, it was so inconsistent and erratic for the first five or six years of our career. Like we weren't like, oh, we're putting out an album. We're going to go tour for two years. It was like, okay, we're going to put out an album and we'll tour for two weeks. And then we just go home and wait and see if someone else wants to take us out on tour or we get more shows. And so right from the beginning, Sarah and I became really obsessed with how to fill our time. Because all our friends were in university and, you know, we came from this very blue collar family where everybody worked, you know, our mom worked two jobs and went to school when we were growing up. And it was like, you better fucking do something with your time. And so Sarah and I would be like, okay, we're going to make movies and documentaries and we're going to write books and we're going to talk to our fans. And when we're on tour, we're going to create TV shows. and We're going to interview our fans. Like we were doing all of this pre YouTube and paying just astronomical fees to host all of this on our website. And, and so I think as we became more popular and finally, you know, people started to pay attention and we started to get a little radio play and bigger bands started taking us out and we started to actually create our own audience. That instinct is still so intense in us. Like we still, like when the pandemic hit, we're like, our managers at the time were like, okay, so we just, we all lean back now and just see this through. And Sarah and I were like, super close music summit. That's our company. And we were like, we're going to have a podcast and we're going to write a graphic novel series and we're going to pitch our memoir for TV and we're going to redo our album. So jealous acoustic. And they were like, what's wrong with you guys? You're unwell. But, uh, you know, we just love making stuff, honestly. And we just love that we get to do this as our job. And I just think I'd rather do this than like make videos for TikTok. So I'm just like every day I'm like, what's our next project? Like this record comes up Friday. <laughs> I'm already like, what can we do so we don't have to become influencers? That's basically my whole new life policy. <laughs> we've, um, We've touched on this a little bit on, on prior episodes, and I'm really curious for your perspective. So allow, allow me to set this question up for a second. Uh, as you're well aware, when uh, the pumpkin started in the late 80s, just having a female in the band was treated as a curiosity. People were very suspicious of why Darcy was there. People assumed that she was put there because she was good looking. It was so disrespectful to her. We, we were highly offended as a unit that she was not treated as a musician. Then, of course, in the time that you guys started, 
um, or gals. I saw this, there was, let's call it the, the Lilith Fair kind of moment. There was a breakthrough with a lot of uh, great uh, female artists. But then to my own disappointment, of course, I want to hear your perspective. This is my setup, but uh, there were some great uh, female artists that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s, who immediately were put into that churn where they felt they had to sexualize themselves in order to find an audience. I found that so disheartening. I'm curious for your perspective because you are now in that incredible, unique position where you've, to use the wrestling term, you've gotten over on your own terms. You haven't had to compromise. You are celebrated for who you are as people, as artists. I know it's a strange question, but you've bridged that gap from that, let's call it the 20 years ago, where so many young female artists were put in the position where the only way they could break through in the record business was to put themselves in a position where it was about their bodies and about their sexuality in the more traditional sense of the word. Uh, and I don't mean that in a good way, you know? Um, so I'm curious for your perspective on that because you really bridge that gap in a unique way. And, and you really are the model that we had hoped to usher in so many years ago where, sorry, it's a little story, but we almost never had anybody at our rehearsals, but there was a rehearsal where somebody happened to be there, like a friend, and they took umbrage with the way that I talked to Darcy about something in a song. And they kind of called me out in it, but in a, almost a sexist way, like I was a man talking to women. I said, you don't understand. I talked to everybody that way. When we're in a rehearsal, <laughs> everybody's a musician. I don't care who you, I don't care yeah. if you're from Mars. If you're not going to play the part right, mm -hmm. I'm going to get on you. And they were like, I never even thought of it like that. And I was like, don't you understand? It's like, that's equality. Equality is we're all here to be in a kick-ass band, not somebody doesn't get treated differently because of their gender. I mean, because that's almost like a weird reverse mm -hmm. form of uh, paternalism or something like, oh, I have to I have to be more gentle with you because, you know, you're you're a female. So I know that's a lot of information to kind of dance through. But again, I think you're in such a unique position because you really are the model of what I am so happy to see, which is that young artists, no matter their gender, no matter their sexuality, no matter their background, are being received on their terms for their talent and their message and who they are as people. So I'm, I really want your perspective on that. I mean, we certainly didn't necessarily have a game plan, you know, in the early part of our career, we just, you know, we were ourselves, you know, we were out, which I think was really uncommon at the time. Like we didn't try to do the, like, I don't want to talk about my sexuality. It's nobody's business game that a lot of people did back then. Like we were like, we were gay and we were just not going to hide it. So we, I think in some ways we didn't face the same kinds of pressures that a lot of women who were identifying as straight did. You know, there was kind of a way to sell yourself as a woman. And if you didn't want to do that, you were up against the labels and radio people and managers and agents and just like such a boys club that, you know, sort of emphasized sexuality and attractiveness more, almost more than music. And, you know, Tegan and I, I think because we were sort of like relegated to the margin well, they're lesbians and they're not even like the, the cool, hot porn lesbians who want to like make out with each other. I mean, seriously, like, you know, it was sort of like, oh, they're not even like the fun gay girls. So we just will like leave them over here to like do what they do. <laughs> and in some ways, you know, it protected us because, you know, we just we were just not put in the same positions as other people. Like we just um, we just got to sort of like be musicians. And even when we would you know, it, later in our career, like we put out an album in 2012 called Heartthrob, which was kind of a tongue in cheek. We had become sex symbols to so many people, you know, in our 20s and early 30s. Like it was almost embarrassing. You know, we would go out on stage and 
people would throw like bras at us. And like, we were like, oh my God, we're so embarrassed. You know, we were so uncomfortable, like really like almost frigid or like asexual feeling, you know? And I think that was just because we were, you know, we're, we're sisters and we had faced so much homophobia and so much misogyny. And we just were like blank, you know, in terms of our sexuality on stage. And suddenly these women are just like throwing you know, their underwear at us. And we were like, are we heartthrobs? Like, is this, what is happening? And, you know, so when we finally did kind of embrace um, the fact that we weren't like hideous monsters, it was like, oh, we'll do this in a funny way. We'll do this in a sort of cerebral way. And it worked for us. You know, it, it felt, it felt like it was on our terms. We are also rejoicing and, um, and excited to see this new young generation of artists gay, straight, whatever, embracing their sexuality and their bodies in whatever way they want. If you want to be a sex symbol and you want to like do that, it shouldn't, it shouldn't reduce, you know, the value of your music. But I think we are living in a different time and you can have it both ways now in a way that you couldn't in the early aughts and the late nineties. Watching high school, I I was taken aback by the split narrative of two sides, because I'm sure you've experienced this in your life, but as twins, people kind of just throw you into the same individual and try to merge you into one. But seeing that there was some division there and then you found yourselves with music and that kind of brought you together. Can you look back and look at that and say, it's crazy to think of how far we've come from people that were just learning music to becoming stars, to becoming successful, to now being representation for maybe people that look to you as role models that they never would have had that you might not have had growing up. Yeah, I mean, it cannot be overstated, like what little fucking dirtbags we were in high school and how shocking it must be. Like last night, we got an email from our dentist when we were kids, and he's my mom's dentist too. So his message was so sweet, but like the undertone of it is like, you know, he said, like, you always, you guys were always so special. And and I will say, like, you know, I do think there was something about us as kids, not just because we were twins. Sarah and I were really gregarious and outgoing. We were always very verbal. We had a lot of respect for adults. We were really, we understood how to speak to adults. We spent a lot of time with our grandparents and their friends. And there was something about us, but there was also something disappointing about us because it was so clear we were very bright and we had could have had a future. And yet we were just insistent on just doing drugs all the time and skipping school and lying and just being overall shitheads in, in, in nothing this, wrong know, with very, that, by the way. <laughs> well, in our case, it, in our case, it cracked us open and, and allowed us to become the creatives we are today. And, and I think my parents, um, whether they consciously knew it or not, knew to let us figure out who we were. We understood that we were unconventional and unconventional learners. And I do think looking at the course of our last 20 years, it's surreal because I don't know how we did it. I don't know how we pulled it off. Like there's so many bands, better bands than us that just couldn't figure it out, couldn't keep it together, couldn't figure out how to tour internationally or put albums out and keep the band together and diversify and still be the people they are today that they were when they started. Like I think Sarah and I are the same people we were when we started out. We're not assholes and we work really hard. And I want to pick up that thread. Cause I think what you said is really interesting and you define something that I, I, I grapple with myself. Yes. The business focuses on hits and image, but I don't really think that's why people listen. It's really strange, right? Why do people really fall in love mm-hmm. with an artist I think it's similar, not the same, similar to the reason they would fall in love with another person in a romantic sense. There's a Mm -hmm. sense of mystery that's attractive. And your story is such a part of what made you successful. So we can point to the high spots, which are a television show, a book, 
a successful song, you know, that's all really important. I'm on, I'm on stage every night playing those high points from my life, of which we I want to talk about one of those with you in a second. But the point is, is, is you were always those people. Your discovery took your audience on a journey, and that's what they're rewarding you for. The music business will tell you they're rewarding you because you, you wrote this really catchy song or figured something out. But I don't, I, really, I don't think deep down that's why people love artists. I think they love artists because they sort of reveal something that's both hidden to the artist and the audience. And somehow when the, when the artist figures out how to share that process, particularly over a long period of time, it creates a fidelity that's very similar to a long-term relationship. So when you go see a band on stage like our bands, you know, over 30 years, it's not just about the songs we play. Because I've always got somebody in my ear tell me, oh, I wish you'd play this song. Now, the new one is they're not playing mayonnaise on the tour, right? That's like, I got to hear about this like every day. Why are you not playing? <laughs> as, if, as if that would be the difference maker between 10,000 people showing up a night to see us play. But in that guy or that gal's head, that's, that's a big difference maker. Anyway, sorry, sorry to ramble on, but... I, I really love what you said there. No, I completely, I honestly, I, I truly, truly, truly believe what you're saying is absolutely it because we've mentored lots of artists over the years and we've spent lots of time dissecting what it is that allowed us to thrive for the last 25 years and still be making music and have people still be interested. And I always say the same thing. We're not the best musicians. We're not the best singers. We're not the hottest, most talented people on the planet. But people come back again and again and again and rediscover us because they are. it's almost like they're checking back in like a friend or a family member. Like, what are they doing now? And I feel that it's the relationship to Sarah and I that keeps people sticking around for a really long time. And I think there's something about us being siblings and the relationship between us and the banter and the way we tell stories and the way we weave our stories together on album and the way we push each other and, and the way that we share our albums that makes people feel like they know us, like really know us. And they feel like they see themselves in us and they also relate to us. And that becomes more important than what the next record is or what the set list is. Like, I think I think it is, and each band, it's probably something a little bit different. But for us, it, there is something about the connection between Sarah and I that, that has, I think, kept a light on for a lot of people when it comes to our band and kept us consistent through all the peaks and valleys of our career. I just want to let you know, as somebody who currently is going through some things, I was just listening to Walking with a Ghost <laughs> the other day. A, because I knew you were going to be on here, but B, also, it's just one of those songs. So I could tell you from a personal standpoint – what you create does connect with the people that hear it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Especially a broken-hearted uh, Floridian post-hurricane. I just know that that. Mm. <laughs> you know it, baby. <laughs> did you have a question, Joe? Sorry, I didn't want to. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Before. I did. As a matter, of, no, no, it's fine. I, I love this conversation that we're having, and of course, I also want to really talk about the classic song that we'll be playing a little later on in the broadcast, and that's today which Tegan and Sarah covered and is a prominent part of the trailer for high school episodes available right now on Amazon freebie and also through Amazon prime. I want to remind people of that, but also just like that song and the importance of that song and using that song uh, as part of the storyline when it comes to high school and maybe your journey through discovering music and discovering yourselves. I actually feel like I'm having an out of body experience right now because I can't, I can't today changed my actual life. Like it, it discovering Siamese dream and the smashing pumpkins was it, it saved my life. And it also, I, I, it's that moment that I hope every person gets in their life. If it's music, if it's golf, I don't care, but like there is the before 
you had heard that song and there is the after you heard that song. And it, it totally changed my life. It just was, I was, you know, I was 14 years old and a, a cute skater guy who totally had a crush on me, but I already knew I was gay, you know, but I was like fine with his attention because he was popular and cool and I was a loser. And he took interest in me and Tegan, but specifically me. And he gave me, he gave me that album and, and I took it home and, and I just remember putting on today and just being like, I want to understand why this does what it does. I want to make this. I want to do this. I want to create this moment for other people. Um, and then I became just an absolutely massive <laughs> Smashing Pumpkins fan, like crazy, crazy fan. And it was it was my band. They're my that's how I feel like it's my band, Billy. It's mine. I think that it also taught me and Tegan we were, we became really super fans in the way that, you know, my stepdad was a super fan of Bruce Springsteen. And then we, I became a super fan of the pumpkins and Tegan was a super fan of Nirvana. And then when we started our band, it was like, we set our band up to do all the things that we wanted our favorite bands to do. You know, like we were like, well, I would have loved to meet, hang out with, you know, the smashing Pumpkins. So it was like Tegan and I would go stand at the merch table. Cause we were like, well, there's only two people here, but you know, I'm going to hang out with them, you know, like, I mean, those were the the connections that happened for me. And that moment of, of, of the first time somebody like, well, actually, truthfully walking with a ghost, just to tie it back into the, a song that's already been mentioned. That was one of the songs that I remember clicking with a large audience and the thrill of playing a set where, you know, we always had people's attention, but when we would play that song, the room would change, the mood would change everyone would sing along and I would just be like, this is amazing. Like what an amazing thing to just be able to do that. But I, you know, be able to use it in the show. I mean, we just have immense gratitude that we were able to show images and talk about the Smashing Pumpkins and have the music in the show. I, I can't tell you the show couldn't exist. If we, if we hadn't been able to have that music in our TV show, it would be like, what's the point of even doing the TV show? Because that's how instrumental it was truly, truly to our development. Well, you, you honor, you I've honor been waiting us. 25 years to say that. Well, you honor us by saying that. So <laughs> thank you. I, I'm really touched. Um, I mean, I know some of it obviously because I, I had to sort of say yes to some of these things, but I'm just really honored to hear you say it because and you know, you're talking about it. It's that feeling of like, how does this thing that I create in a basement or my bedroom land halfway across the world to somebody with a completely different set of <laughs> priorities and focus, right? Because everybody's got their own deal they got to figure out. And uh, yeah, it's very powerful. And And what's particularly powerful about that song, I did talk about it a little bit on the last podcast we did was, um, you know, I went through a really, really long suicidal period, about eight months. And that was the first song that I wrote coming out of that suicidal funk, where I I told this story in the last podcast, but I'll tell it since you're here, which is, I, I, I got so sick of thinking about killing myself that I made the decision on a particular day that I either I was going to kill myself or I was going to sort of get off it. And so on that particular day, instead of killing myself, I, I wrote the song today. It really came from a very, very, very deep place of pain and confusion. And I just had to make this weird decision that whoever I was, I had to accept myself. I think that's why I've always had a particular sensitivity for anybody who's kind of on the outside of, let's call it typical American culture. And of course, that's a shifting tide. But um, at that particular point in my life, circa early 90s, even though I was in alternative music and even though I was already in a successful alternative band, I felt there was no room for someone like me. 
And you know enough about my history to know that I was routinely and constantly attacked for who I was and am, even to this day, less so, but particularly back then. And it was shocking because I thought, if I'm in the land of lost toys and there's no room for me, I mean, where do I go? There's no other alternative music. Like, I, I'm already in the alternative music. And all those stresses upon my head at that point, it was, it really came from a place of like, okay, the only way I'm going to live is I have to be myself. And somehow that was the breakthrough song of authenticity. It still strikes me because I play it on stage, you know, every night. And it always has that sort of sense of innocence. You know, you're right at the precipice of, of sort of innocence to, okay, I, I'm going to have to step forward and take whatever's coming at me. And that's even why the video was so important to us about the, uh, the crazy ice cream guy. And, you know, the record label fought us on that too, because it was really about saying, I'm just not going to be whoever you want me to be anymore. I just can't, I can't do it. I'm, I'm literally going to die. Mm -hmm. And I know you know that feeling, and hopefully not too bad as bad as I felt it, but I'm, I, I get the sense you've been through it. You know, and it's it's so generous of you that you share that backstory, I think, with people because, you know, I mean, I think we all felt that resonating at that time. I mean, certainly I did as a teenager. I didn't think you seemed like you were having the best time. You know, like I wasn't like, he's a rock star and he's living the dream. Like, I think what made what made it all connect was the videos. I mean, Tegan and I had a, a VHS of the, uh, I don't know how you pronounce it, Viaphoria? Viaphoria? Is we that call how it you would say Viewphoria. It's like one of those bad malparisms that I put together. Viewphoria. But we used to watch that all the time. And, you know, it was so clear. I mean, your your angst and your sort of disgruntledness was so attractive. That's what we needed. Like, we were, we were bratty teenagers and we were disgruntled and we were unhappy with things. And we didn't have space for... We couldn't find space for ourselves. And so, you know, it really connected. And I think you're probably right to some degree that feeling never kind of goes away. And I feel like, you know, as one of the one of the most profound sort of surreal moments of making the TV show was watching Season and Rayleigh, the the twins who play Tegan and I on the show. They're just remarkable. You know, they were just like random kids we found on TikTok. They didn't play music. They had never acted um, they were living in Fresno. They were working at a pizza joint. They had no idea what they were doing with the rest of their lives. We were like, they have to play us. And, you know, everybody was like, well, you know, we should look at other twins and actors and musicians. And I was like, you can teach people how to hit a mark or not to look down a camera or whatever, like not to like down, like downplay how important acting is. But like, I was like, we can teach these kids to do these things. We can teach them to play a couple of guitar chords and sing. We cannot teach anyone to embody what it is to feel othered and different and queer. And, you know, like you have something compelling that you know people want to look at, but also don't want to look at. And these kids just had that. And watching, you know, season specifically play today was like, it was so out of body for me, like watching the version of me play the song that changed my life. I don't know. It was just, it's been such a surreal experience to like hand that, that important moment in my life down to another generation. And hopefully a new generation of people will see it on the TV show and discover the Smashing Pumpkins. You know, like that's so exciting to me. What's difficult about that, and I think this is a good way to wrap it up, is you're constantly told in the music business what has value. And yet here we are talking about things that were super valuable to us in the exchange and they don't have anything to do with the value that we're constantly told has value, right? <laughs> like who you are, who you are in quotations, right? Who you actually are, the people that you are is why you're still here. And that's what's so wonderful about your musical journey. 
And who I am is why I'm still here. But I was told constantly, no, 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 no. Wrong, 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 wrong. And that's what's so, I think, important about what's going on socially, at least in the last decade or so. I love that you use the word othered. That's a word I occasionally use. It's a sense that something about you just doesn't fit in. And think of all the value in human life and love and experience that gets lost, particularly through suicide, because individuals feel, I just don't fit in. So if you're one of those people, I think you got three people for sure on this current podcast that understand that journey and can tell you, you can get through to the other side and actually not only find peace with that, but find a, a place of celebration where it becomes part of the, the, the medals that you wear on your chest. And uh, I'm really touched by you saying that because I never could have in a, in a million zillion years imagined that, that something like that would have touched you in that way. But here we are, and it's just so beautiful. <laughs> it really did. It's very surreal. I feel like either I'm dead or like this is this is one it's, of those like I'm in purgatory you know and I get to have like I get to talk to my to the to 33 the, to the, dreams come true yeah. here. <laughs> you were saying something. I was Sorry. just going to add. Yeah, I was just going to add briefly that when you were when the two of you were both just saying what you were saying, the thing that popped into my head is like later on in our memoir in 11th grade, we go sleep in a parking lot to get tickets to see the melancholy tour, which came through Calgary. <laughs> and all of our friends went to the absolute worst mall in Calgary, which is called Marlboro Mall. And Sarah and I grew up right down the street from it. You know, it was like, had the largest, you know, kind of roving group of pedophiles looking to pick up teens. And like, you know, it was just like a terrible, like friends of ours got shot there one time. You know, my mom was like, do not go to that mall. But we loved Smashing Pumpkins so much. And that was where Sears was and the ticket outlet in the Northeast of Calgary was at Sears. And so we went with our friends and we slept with probably about 75 other people in the parking lot. And my mom slept in her minivan, watched us lay out on the street with all these strangers to get tickets. What's really funny is, is that like the show did eventually sell out, but it would, we would have been able to buy tickets in the morning. Like we could have just showed up and bought tickets, but we, we were, we so, we so specifically needed the experience of being there. And Sarah and I both have this story of like, you know, entering the arena and, and sitting down with all of our friends and staring at the stage. And, you know, when you guys came out on stage, like when the music started and you guys walked out on stage, like all of us, you know, we were all varying degrees of fans, but we were all fans, like big fans, but like all of us in that moment burst out crying. And I see this, I mean, we all see this as musicians, you see it in your audience, but I'll never let myself forget this feeling because when I look out in the audience, and I see people doing this. I know what they're feeling. And what it was, was it was, it was like, oh my God, they're real. You know, like I could cry right now. Like it's the strangest sensation when you have it. Like it's been kind of ruined by social media because now we see people all the time and we know everything about them and they reveal so much. But in that moment in like 1996 in Calgary, it was like all of us at once had the same, like almost nauseating wave of, of, excitement of like, they're real, they're real people. They're really there. They're very small because they're very far away. Cause I don't know. We were too afraid to get floor seats because we'd gone to green day the year before and we almost got crushed to death. So it was like, we, but we were like, there they are. They're real. And that night you Billy, before like the end of the show, you gave a really, really long, you know, probably some people would call it rant, but we were like, inspired. <laughs> we were like inspired. So we would have called it a speech. You know, we were like, he gave the audience an inspiring speech because people 
you know, had left after they heard the hits. And you were like, you weren't mad at them. You were like, absolutely, those people left. And what's left in the arena right now, the people that are still here, you're here because the music touched you and connected with you. And you are embedded into like the story that I'm telling you. You did this whole thing. And we were like all holding each other, <laughs> like, this, like disenfranchised, you know, angry, othered outsiders. And we were all like, yes, Billy, we're here. We feel it. We get it. And I just, it's shit. Uh, it's really the the community we tried to build in our own audience and how I see shows now, like when we get uh, to the encore and people are streaming out, I, I'm not sad. I'm like, yeah, dude, get to your car, beat the rush, go grab a t-shirt on the way out. But the people that are left, those people clutching each other in the front, I always look down at them and I'm like, you really needed this. And, and that's what makes my whole life feel worthwhile, you know? Beautifully said. Any quick, quick thing. We call that in the band, the art breakdown. That's the art breakdown. Whenever I would go off, it was known it's as the art breakdown. It's been discussed previously. Yeah, we actually discussed the art breakdown. It happens more often than you think. Well, no, in real life, no, too. Listen, real quick, because we have to be succinct in our broadcasting here. No, what it was, was we had reached a point where we're, we're an arena-level band. I think on that particular tour, we did 93 shows across North America, um, which was insane. The band toured for 22 months on the Melancholy album. And of course, in the middle, we had tragedies and... So it was quite an intense period of time. And so I found myself playing, you know, a two and a half hour show and watching the guys, usually it was the guys, uh, that I hated in high school. Now they're cheering me on, but the minute they get their satiated fill of whatever five MTV songs are out the door. And now I'm having to choose between the artist that I am that got me to the dance, which is a radical outside the box thinker versus, hey, if you just kind of get in line and play the concert that people want. I actually got a call from my manager at the time, said, the thing you're doing at the end, which is the very thing you're talking about, uh, we're selling less t-shirts because of that, and you need to stop it. And I told him to go F himself. Because I was like, I'm yeah. not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't care. Like, if you think, if you think that's why I'm up there, uh, playing a 30-minute version of Silver F, to use the podcast parlance, um, and 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 going off and doing an art breakdown and talking to people that are, in my estimation, on the same level as me, psychologically and spiritually, like we're all here together to have an experience. We're not here to just play the hits. That's not what this band's really about. That was that choice every night that I made. And literally, I was getting yelled at because we were costing t-shirt sales. So I think that's a beautiful setup for us. Thanking you for being here. And um, again, I wish you... Uh, both the best. It's just so uh, happy and pleased that you've landed on your feet. You've always deserved it, but to do it on your own terms, as you know, I did it on my own terms. It's the best feeling in the world. So big high five to both of you. Hope to see you soon. I've heard rumors that you may pop up with us somewhere, so you're always welcome anytime uh, on stage. Hey, listen, you putting you put this song in your, in your book, in your TV show is, is the best intro I could have. So uh, when we come back from the break today... Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. 
smart enough to anticipate your needs even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.
Welcome back to 33. You just heard the song today off the 1993 album Siamese Dream. And Billy, one of my favorite things about this song was I believe the first time I ever saw it was on MTV, was with the music video. And we talked about it a little bit earlier with Tegan and Sarah. The thought process that you have was very different than maybe the label was looking for as far as a music video from the Smashing Pumpkins. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, the famous story goes that I had experienced a ice cream truck driver giving away all his ice cream on the street one night. It was dusky, and I saw a bunch of kids around the ice cream truck, and there was this kind of sound that told you something was happening that was a little bit different than the average ice cream exchange. And I went over, and the guy said, what do you want? And, and I picked something out, and I went to get my money. He goes, no, it's free. And I literally said to him, why? <laughs> he said, because I'm quitting my job. I hate my job, and I'm giving away all the ice cream. <laughs> so somehow that stuck in my mind, you know, as this sort of symbolic moment. Uh, you know, a, a, a big uh, moment of rebellion. And so in making the video, or at least the conception part of the video, I somehow struck back on the idea of this moment in my life. And so I pitched to the record company, I'm going to be an ice cream truck driver who's giving away all his ice cream, same story. And then along the way, I'll pick up the various band members and the record label went, no, <laughs> you can't make that video. As in, no, we're not going to give you the money to make that video. That's what that really means. And I said, I think it's a great idea. The band loved the idea. They thought it was funny. And they said, no, you can't because your first song, which was Cherub Rock, hasn't done as well on MTV as we would have liked. So we want you to make a very straightforward MTV video. We know the song's a hit. It's already sort of testing well behind the scenes. So basically, keep it simple, stupid. Make the classic band against the brick wall video. Jump around. Look like you're cool. Look like you belong very faint concept and you'll be a rock star kid and don't ask any questions. And I said, no, which is one of those moments in your life. When you say no, when it's that moment, you are really taking a big chance. I can't believe I said no then, but I did. And somehow I was able to make the famous ice cream truck video with a director who really didn't want to make the video. So he was obsessed with a movie called Zabriskie Point. And he wanted to combine my idea with basically ripping off a famous uh, movie called Zabriskie Point, which I think was made by a French director, Truffaut maybe. I can't remember off the top of my head. I'm sure someone will fact check me. So that's why the video has these weird scenes of people making out in the hills and stuff, which had nothing to do with my concept in which the director who insisted on wearing a dress, which isn't a problem because I wear a dress on stage, but he had no underwear on. So when he was standing on top of the ice cream truck, the whole world could see his, uh, what do you call it? Twig and berries, as they say in England, twig and berries swinging in the wind quite horrifically. And then uh, I, I, at some point along the way, I think on the band's, uh, home video, which Tegan and Sarah referred to called Vephoria. On the alternate audio track, I talked about our experiences, which were somewhat poor in making the video. And then once that came out, the director attacked me in, in the press. I think he said I was the worst person he ever worked with, which, you know, I wear those uh, badges uh, proudly. Talk about being othered because uh, I'm so horrible because I just want to make a video about an ice cream truck driver and I ruined his art film that he wanted to make with people making out in the hills behind the ice cream truck for no reason. Go back and watch the video. Explain to me why are there people making out behind the ice cream truck as the band of Mary pranksters drives by. And of course, the brisky point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fact check you right here, 1970 movie, and you were right with an Italian director. It's the most Italian name I think I've ever seen in my life. Michelangelo Antonioni. Yeah, Antonioni. Antonioni, Antonioni is, a, is a contemporary yeah. of, of Truffaut and some of the other great uh, foreign directors of the time that had a lot of success in America because they were great filmmakers. And apparently there's Pink Floyd music in, in the thing. I'm in just fact, reading it off you, online. I think if you want to get really deep, 
Um, no, I'm wrong. It's actually for another movie that Pink Floyd did, but uh, some of that music ended up on Dark Side of the Moon, but I believe that movie was called More, if you want to fact check me on that. But yeah, Zabriskie Point had a bunch of different uh, bands, I believe. I believe it wasn't just Pink Floyd. I could be wrong about that. Um, but again, famous art movie. Oh, Roger Waters, also there. Yeah, you're right. Um, famous Roy Ar- Orbison. Yeah. Famous art movie. And for some reason, see, this is classic. Let me go a little uh, inside baseball on how the music business works, at least circa 1990s. So you have a director who's obviously very talented and uh, wants to break into music directing, probably because they want to do a Nike commercial. So they look at the band from a predatory point of view, which is I've got to get the band to do the video that I want to do so I get the thing I really want, which is more expensive work, i.e. commercials. So the music video is sort of their demo reel. The label calls up the director and says, right, uh, Billy wants to work with you. He's got this idea where he's an ice cream truck driver. And the director says, yes, because they want the gig, not because they really want the gig for my idea. They want the gig because they want the gig. So now you get the gig. Now the director starts trying to talk me into his idea. And I'd seen the movie, so I knew what he was talking about. And I'm a bit of a snob when it comes to movies. So I kind of get the point. And I'm like, yeah, but you understand, this is a riff on Americana. You know, the innocent ice cream truck driver Golly G picks up the the guy in the dress, which is James, and Jimmy's the you know the mechanic, and Jimmy and Darcy are both working as mechanics in a garage, and we pick them up because we didn't have the time to pick up three separate individuals, which was the original idea. So they were, I think, compressed into one scene, and then there was the weird scene. Oh, this is a little more. Uh, see, now this is why this is good because it, my memory started to come back. So there was the scene where pick up Jimmy and Darcy at the gas station. Well, the director wants a scene where because of the movie. He wants us to paint each other with paint. So you got to imagine we're standing in the desert heat out, you know, out by Coachella or something. You know, it's like 147 degrees. And the guy with the French accent is trying to convince us to paint each other because he'd seen it in some movie. Because again, he wants to get a commercial. He doesn't care about our video. So we're kind of like, well, we don't really want to paint each other. We think that's lame. We'll paint the truck. So we do a couple scenes where we paint the truck and he's like, oh, you know, it's not really with, you know, this kind of thing. So then classic Smashing Pumpkins logic, we start painting each other, but to mock him. So that's what's actually in the video is we're painting each other, but not because we want to paint each other. We want to make fun of him. And there's this great shot of James where James is completely mocking the idea of painting someone. He's like, ooh, which is classic inside baseball pumpkins logic. So we're rebelling in our own video while we're making our own video of rebellion because the director won't allow us to make the one we actually want to make and that we're paying for. I enjoy the fact that, A, the record company says, no, you didn't do good enough on this, so we want you... A, they don't get what they want. Then they bring in an artist. It gets even more out of control than what they wanted in the first place. So you have this secret little victory on here. You get your way, and it makes them probably even angrier. And I have to ask you, though, this song is one of the many songs in all of the history of music where it's got such a tone to it, and it just pulls you right in. And, you know, it's a Dave Matthews Band song, but there's a lyric where they're like, somebody's heart is broken, it becomes your favorite song. This song is so dark, and yet at the same time, you hear it, and if you're not listening, you're like, man! I love this song. I feel great. In my particular state of mind at the time, I had one, right? Which was, I decided not to kill myself. <laughs> so I, okay, that's victory one. So I'm kind of in a good mood, which sounds kind of strange, but okay. I managed to get through not killing myself. I, I didn't kill myself. Like, great. Life is good. I'm still here. So it struck me as really funny. And this does get into the, my authentic voice, which is, of course, uh, someone from the Corgan lineage, and I come from a very, very dark family. If anybody knows my family, they know what I'm talking about. 
it makes sense in the Corrigan lineage that you would write a happy song about suicide. <laughs> it still makes me laugh, right? I mean, I mean, and by the way, 90% of the people who hear the song think it's just a happy song. Like, today's the greatest day. Like, oh, what a great day. The birds are singing. And I'm literally like, today's a great day because I, I didn't kill myself. Does it always get you to think about how far off people can be? Like, as a musician, you kind of are a puppeteer. You pull the emotion strings of people while also conveying what you want. But at the same time, is there a certain strength in knowing that I can make somebody feel something fantastic about something horrible? I think when you're young, at least when I was young, there's a sense of Promethean fire, right? You've been given a gift that somehow translates into energy that translates into people care about your song or your concert. And there's this sort of egoy thing that goes on, which is like, you can do crazy stuff. You could probably talk people into a riot. Um, and there's some stories there where I did some things that were quite crazy and people did crazy stuff in response to things I said and did. Let me tell you, that's not real power. Real power is change the world. Real power is what Tegan and Sarah are doing. That's, you're changing the world. Change the world, make the world a better place for more people. That's real power. Getting a bunch of crazy people high on something to do something like throw a chair or something, that's not real power. Real power is getting people to affect positive change, positive change. So yes, did the song affect positive change? Yes. The fact that the young ladies were talking about what the song meant to them and how it helped inspire their own musical journey, that's super powerful. But let me tell you what, for me, that song was just like, hey man, I've just come through the darkest period of my life. I didn't off myself. I'm still here. Yeah, I'm poor and nobody knows who I am. But you know what? I still have my sense of humor intact. I'm going to sit here and write a song about suicide and I'm going to make it a kind of a funny song. And here we are, 30 literally almost 30 years, probably 30 years since I wrote the song. So the fact that we're still going with the song, well, I'd say that was a good joke. Do you think that song saved your life? Is that is that fair to say? That song, it is song, probably saved my life, yeah. Because, and I don't mean to be glib, but if I wrote bad music coming out of that period, what was the suffering for? The suffering was just suffering, you could argue, make worse music. I was already a successful music musician. I had money in the bank. That's the other part of the story that's maybe not as attractive, but I had a lot of money in the bank. I had everything you're supposed to have, right? Status, fame, success, money. And yet I'm lower than low. I mean, I felt like a bug on the street that somebody could just come and step on. And, and I don't mean to make light of suicide as somebody who's been on that line many times. That's why I always take it seriously to the point to say to anybody who's listening, you can get through it. It is difficult, but you have to get through it because you have this incredible opportunity and you can come out the other side and do good things with that. Yeah, it's crazy. It changed my life because I finally let the real me talk. I know I talked about it before, but I let that guy start running the show. There's a quick concept, which is the idea that if you speak with your authentic voice, well, that's really the only true happiness that one can find in life. If you're a successful artist, you're probably speaking with your authentic voice and being rewarded for it. And so in my case, there was a sense that the things I was suffering through personally had to do with the fact that I couldn't be myself. I still struggle with that. But professionally, if I could speak with my authentic voice, well, then it would give me access to a higher level of audience. And I don't mean that necessarily commercially. I mean that I wanted to find an audience like the Tegans and Sarahs of the world who would understand why I was actually bothering to be an artist. 
I wasn't attracted to the stage because I wanted people to look at me. I was attracted to the stage because I wanted people to hear what I had to say, because I felt what I had to say had value. I'd had enough conversations in diners and with teachers that gave me a sense that my voice in the world was contributory. That's hard to define when you're a young person. Like Tegan and Sarah talked about it. They knew they had something to say, and it's taken them years to figure out exactly what they were saying, even before they knew they were saying it. And now it looks so obvious. But remember, there were years there where they were kind of lost in the wilderness, and there were only two people at the merch stand. It looks so obvious in reverse. They had to find that. They had to figure that out. And those songs in particular, today being the first of the two, sort of said, okay, there's something here. You just got to keep going. And I think on that note, that is a good note to go out on. Once again, Tegan and Sarah's new show, High School, Episodes available now for free through the streaming platform Amazon Freebie. You can also find that on Amazon Prime. Tegan and Sarah's new album Cry Baby is out now, and the duo will begin their North American tour starting Wednesday, October 26th in Philadelphia. Isn't that right, Kyle? That is absolutely correct. You can also find them on Instagram at Tegan and Sarah and on Twitter at Tegan and Sarah. And as for us here at 33, reminder that new episodes drop every Tuesday. Use the hashtag WPC33, spelling it out. You can follow Joe Galley on Instagram at Joe Galley and Twitter at Joe Galley News. I'm online as Kyle Davis ATL. And most importantly, Billy Corrigan is on Twitter at Billy and Instagram at Billy Corrigan. Look at that. I changed it and fixed it. Also stop by SmashingPumpkins.com for merch and Spirits on Fire tour dates. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening via iTunes, Spotify, iHeart app, or wherever you get your podcast. And also, if you're still not satiated, make sure you go over to WPC33.com. Continue the conversation, playlist, lyrics, more on the influences that make the Smashing Pumpkins music you love. Billy, thank you as always for sharing with us. What do you got for us? And if you're really, really not satiated, watch Joe, Kyle, and I on NWA Power and NWA USA, my wrestling company that we all work together on. So we'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.